Hello, and welcome again to another episode of Five Plain Questions, a podcast that proposes five questions to Indigenous artists, creators, musicians, writers, movers and shakers, and culture bearers, people in the community that are doing great things for their communities. I'm Joe Williams, your host for this conversation. I'm director of CANA, the Native American programs at the Plains Art Museum. My goal is to showcase these amazing people in our Indigenous communities from around the region and country. I want to introduce you to Tyrell Iron Eyes. Tyrell is a citizen of the Standing Rock Sioux Nation. Tyrell is a Hunkpapa Lakota and a Hitawan Dakota with German descent. His upbringing is with a strong influence of his Lakota and Dakota ancestry, and culture shapes his photography and his art. He seeks to raise empowerment of indigenous voices across North America. He has repurposed photography, a tool long used to create monolithic caricatures of native peoples and poverty porn, to more accurately show the life ways of people as they live and not based on idealized and romanticized images. Currently, he is a graduate student pursuing anthropology, though clearly his first love of photography is, is such a powerful thing. One thing that makes Tyrell so interesting is the perspective that he brings to the XL Keystone Pipeline protests from 2016 and 2017. And the, the conversation that you're about to listen to uh, takes a little different form than our normal five plane questions format. I mean, we, we stick to it, but we expand a little more on, on this conversation, which I think is so important and uh, so valued. So with that said, let's jump into this conversation with Tyrell. Tyrell Ironize, thank you so much for joining us at Five Plane Questions. It's really great to have you here. Thank you for asking me. I was really honored when you sent the email. Would you be able to introduce yourself? Uh, tell us a little bit about your uh, your background and where you're from. Oh, how mataki api Tyrell ishtamaza machi api elo iam oslaha hematha na akiti tahanska elwatilo hongpapa na si hasapa malahota na ihangta wana de mahota yelo itoapi wachu na itoapi wachu wichasha na hematelo. Uh, hello, my relatives. My name is Tyrell Ironize. I come from the Standing Rock Nation. Specifically, I come from Long Soldier District. Uh, I belong to the Hunkpapa and Sihasapa bands of Lahota and the Ihanktawana Dahota. Um, and that last bit that I always kind of stumble over is me in Lakota saying I'm a photographer. So... Currently, you're a student at NDSU. Yes, and uh, you're a photographer. Can you talk a little bit about um, uh, your photography and and uh, where I guess where you've been through with that work? Yeah. So, um, photography wise, I've always loved taking pictures. Uh, when I was a kid, my parents would buy me like the little disposable Fujifilm Kodak cameras. Um, where there it was preloaded with film and you would just run around and take pictures. And I never really knew what I was doing. I just knew that I love taking pictures and like the, and getting to hold them after. Um, and like, as I got older, uh, like my mom and dad would get these like point and shoots, like digital point and shoots. And I started to play around with them, figuring out like the limits of them and their, the, the manual settings on them, what little that some of them had. Then in 2014, I started my undergrad at NDSU. 
And in the spring of 2015, um, my grades weren't the best. And so I dropped out from NDSU and I went back to Standing Rock. And I was not in a position to be buying a camera, but I was like, you know what? This is the perfect time for me to buy a DSLR. Uh, so I bought a Canon 7D that summer. And I got, I had a year of kind of learning how it worked, um, using the kit lenses, trying to like amass gear. Cause as a, like as a, um, beginner, I was so focused on having gear, having a bunch of lenses, having a bunch of stuff and not really understanding that none of that really mattered. It was more framing and like actual, the mechanics of everything, but I was like, no better lenses. Um, and I really started to notice that part of it in the summer of 2016, which had a lot of things happening. Um, I, me and some friends went on a road trip that lasted about two weeks. Um, we went out to the West coast for something. I can't quite remember, but in that two weeks, it was just me and four other of my friends driving around, taking pictures. And then when we came back, um, the Dakota Access Pipeline protest camp, uh, the overflow camp, the one that got to be many thousands strong, had just been established. So I came back to that. And it always kind of bothered me that all of the media out there, all of the photography, all of the record keeping out there, was being done by non-natives, but being specifically being done by non-tribal entities. Um, and I just, I felt that like that story should have been told by someone from Standing Rock. Um, this gets a little bit away from your initial question, but I remember in uh, November, October, November of 2016, um, I went out there and they told me I couldn't take photos because I wasn't attached to like a media outlet. And I was in like the little media tent that they had set up. And I asked everyone in that tent where they were from. And uh, a couple guys were confused as to why, but I made everyone in there answer where they were from. And everyone gave me a different answer. And no one was from North Dakota. No one was from Standing Rock. No one was from even a reservation. And so I was able to point at the cannonball river, um, just a couple hundred yards to our South. And I was like, that's where I'm from. When everything's done here, you guys get to go home. I have to live with all of it. And they gave me, they gave me a pass after that. And they let me take photos out there. And I just remember feeling some kind of way that I had to like make a case to take photos at my own movement, take photos on my own land. And that's something that's always like stuck with me. I think. Who, without giving names, um, who, who was it that was making the decisions to uh, grant access to photographers? Was it uh, someone within the movement, or was uh, was it someone from the tribe? It was someone from the movement. So, um, what had happened with there was uh, this whole podcast might just become like a brief history of No Dapple. Um, so. What happened was the initial camp, Sacred Stone Camp, was established on April 1st of 2016 um, by a number of people from the tribe, uh, LaDonna Allard um, among them. Yeah, I believe it was on her land originally. 
And over the next couple of months, um, up until probably late July, early August, so three, four months, uh, that camp started to grow and grow and grow. And they needed a place to go because they kind of ex- were getting too big to be on that initial setup. And the decision was made to establish the overflow camp on um, taken lands, Army Corps of Engineer lands, just north of the Cannonball, in that little uh, floodplain there. And I don't think anyone expected it to be as permanent as it was or as long lasting as it was. Because again, in those when it was established, it was considered an overflow camp. But once that part got established and people could see it from the highway, because it was right next to Highway 1806, it started to grow and grow and grow. And that was when a lot of social media influencers, a lot of activists started showing up. And so once it got to that point, control kind of left the tribe and went more to who was in the camp at the time. Um, so whoever was there, like the leadership was never centralized. It was always a bunch of different people and they would, sometimes they would communicate with each other. Um, sometimes it was just kind of people kind of left were left to their own, uh, realms. So the tribe had really no say in the photographic practices, at least as far as I was aware when I was out there. So at a certain point then, um, I guess it just sort of, uh, uh, created, how do I say this? It just sort of created within itself, uh, evolved. Uh, it was sort of, um, very organic in its, yep. its evolution. Yeah, it was, uh, the, the community of photographers that create, that were created there in the camps doing whatever it was, was very much like a recursive thing. Um, like they were, it started there and it was kind of policed from within but for for me who was there at the beginning um because the first photos or like the first documentation of no dapple um when like the ride on april 1st and when those camps got established it was me one of the liaisons from the tribe and then unicorn riot um we were the only three there that were recording everything um one of the local news stations in bismarck came down and they got like a few shots and then they just kind of left it but it started out as just us three then uh august hit and a bunch of people started coming i imagine in that situation um it was probably impossible to remove yourself as a photographer and as a hunkpapa citizen of Standing Rock. Um, yeah. What was, um, at least artistically, uh, what was the your driving force at that time out there? Being out there taking those photos, the goal wasn't, the goal wasn't to get famous. The goal wasn't to make like a big name for myself. Um, and that's never been the goal. Uh, the goal is always, and it was really like kind of forged there, but the goal was always to show what life was, what life was like in the day to day moments. 
um, the, cause the spectacle of specific actions of specific protests with specific people, like that'll always garner views. That'll always get attention of some kind. But I really want to focus in on the day-to-day lives of people in those camps. The people who were sitting there cooking meals for everyone, the people who were chopping wood, um, setting up the campsites, doing the day-to-day maintenance. Because part of the power of those camps was the fact that it was a camp, like the fact that it was a camp, that people were living there and spending extended amounts of time there. And that was what I really wanted to capture. Um, The issue there for me, uh, among many issues, but specifically trying to capture like the daily life was that I felt bad being a bystander. Um, Like if I showed up to somewhere and I would, I felt bad if I was just sitting back and taking pictures and not helping with the actual activity. So a lot of my photo taking kind of fell to the wayside because I felt bad taking photos of two guys who were visibly breathless and exhausted chopping wood. And I was like, I, I got to help. And that was a repeated thing was I would show up, I would take probably 10 photos. And then I would realize that I was doing no good taking photos and it'd be better for me to like actually get in here and do some of the manual labor. Yeah. Looking back on a lot of those, a lot of my photos from that time, um, I always felt like I took way more than I actually did. And I realized that that was a big reason as to why the numbers didn't match up in my head versus what I actually have on a hard drive. Hearing you tell this story um, or recalling these events, uh, I'm stuck with this thought that, you know, uh, you mentioned that um, being a bystander, this feeling of being a bystander. Yet at the same time, uh, you, I think in hindsight, you are serving your community by documenting what was going on and telling the truth of what was happening there, which I think is, is a much larger role than probably one can appreciate in the moment while it's happening. Yeah, that's definitely the case. Cause again, looking back, I'm like, I wish I took more photos. I wish I sat there and dedicated more time to talking to people and actually getting shots. Cause what I have, like, um, one of my favorite photos that I've ever taken is when you're coming into camp where, when you were coming into camp, um, someone had brought out a basketball hoop and they weighed it down with, um, one of those big, like wire spools. And, uh, it's these four kids, three or four kids playing basketball there's no concrete, no hardwood. They're just playing it right there on the prairie. And it just, it's one of those things that feels so quintessentially reservation to me. And it makes me so happy every time I look at that picture. Cause I have this fascination with, uh, no matter where you go, no matter how rough the the ground looks somewhere, there's a basketball hoop because that is so ingrained in who we are and what brings us joy that we will find a way to play basketball no matter where. And that, again, like that's part of why I love that photo because these guys were on the front lines of a protest and in the downtime, what do we do? Well, let's get a, a hoop and a ball and let's go out there and play a quick game of pickup. Yep. <laughs> and it just, yeah, I can't stress enough how, how much of that photo in particular pleases me. 
And that was something I wanted to ask you is, is one of the, what's the, maybe the standout image of that experience. There's, there's a couple, there's that one that always stands out to me. And then there was two from the same night. Um, I forget who it was, but some group pulled up in a bus and, uh, it was parked kind of on the hillside. And so I have this photo at twilight of these kids standing on top of the bus and they're just silhouetted against the, um, the purples and grays of the night sky. And then off to the right, there's a crescent moon and it just stands there in super stark contrast to everything. And I'm, I'm always torn between that photo. And then I have another one that same, same night, probably five minutes after of, uh, it's cars up on the, um, on the skyline and it's people kind of milling around. And if memory serves, I think that's Facebook Hill. Cause it was one of the only places that you could get service out there. So people would go up there and that was where they would check Facebook and Twitter and call their uh, families, whatever. Uh, and they're all up there and in the top right of the frame, there's that crescent moon again. And it's all set against the, like the purples and pinks and then the grays of the foreground. And it's always between those three photos from the movement that I always like return to. Cause those last two always feel like they're from a dream. Um, I like guess it's, it's the only way I can ever refer to them. Um, I had a triptych at one point, like these three photos that I had like picked out and my only, uh, guidance guidance for how I was picking the photos was, did they feel like a dream to me? Um, and those one, that one always feels like if I didn't have the photo, I feel like I would just think that I made it up. Um, because it was so picturesque and it just had such a mood to it that if I think about it too long, I'm like, there's no way it, it looked like that. And then I walk out in my hallway and I, cause I have that one blown up big and I'm like, no, that photo that actually looks like that. After, after the, the experience out there, um, what, what did you move on to artistically, uh, with your work? I, I think I stayed mostly the same. Um, my photos have never been planned. Um, like I don't, I don't set up time to go to a studio. Um, there's occasional times where I'll do portraits for people, but we'll never do it in a studio. We'll set up, um, like a time and they'll either come to me with locations or I'll kind of rack my brains for locations to go do stuff. But I don't have like studio lighting. I don't have, I don't even have a flash for my camera. Everything I do is natural light, natural environments, or if not natural, like unaltered environments. Hmm. And that pulls from me starting photography with no dapple and with hunting um, cause arguably hunting is where I started really taking photos before, um, Dapple hit. And 
with both of those, like you don't get time to prepare. You don't have time to set up all these, all this nice equipment. It's you have your camera, your lens, and it's very much like the old adage for um, like photojournalism where it's like, what's the best aperture? And it's like, you put it at F stop of eight and be there. And that was one of the things that like really is at the core of a lot of my photography is it doesn't really matter where I am. The point of it is for me to be there. And so I always look for like the interesting moments, but I think the mundanity of day to day, like just the repeated actions, the general parts, the general minutia of everyday life is one of those things that I really saw the importance of at No Dapple. And when I take photos today, that's always something that I'm really paying attention to is the small details because the big stuff, someone also see that everyone can appreciate that in the moment, but it's the small stuff where when you're looking back on it, that's what makes things really memorable. That's what makes things real. So that's kind of what I look for. Um, the other thing that always, one of the things I have to fight from that time frame, um, is because I have no time to, I had no time to do anything. Even today, I'm very, very like haphazard and kind of quick with taking photos. Um, and I'm trying to make myself slow down because I'm not on the front lines of anything anymore. I'm, it's a very useful thing whenever I go to protests or like large gatherings for, to take photos because that skill is still very applicable there. But in my day to day, I still like snap things like super fast and I don't really check anything or like experiment with framing or anything like that. Cause I'm, I'm always just thinking it's better for me to get the photo than to think about it. But now if I go out on photo walks, I'm like really forcing myself to slow down and actually look at framing, look at the lighting, look at how I can compose stuff. And that it's something I've been thinking about a lot lately. Um, as I like experiment more with photography and how I'm putting it out there and how I'm creating it. Hmm. In school, are you enrolled in the photography program at NDSU or what program are you enrolled uh, in? Uh, no, actually, um, I am a master's student in anthropology. Oh. Um, I took a photography course, um, I forget when. I took a photography course in undergrad, took two of them. Uh, one was film photography where it's all black and white film. Um, I had a Canon T70 from, I got it for 40 bucks at a thrift store. And that was what I learned like film and stuff on. And we would develop and um, enlarge our own prints and everything. It was a super great experience. And then the year that I graduated from undergrad, so 2018, 2019, uh, they offered a drone photography course. And I didn't know if I'd ever get the opportunity to play around with drones, but I was like, here's an opportunity for me to do it right now. So that's those are the only photography courses I've ever taken. Um, everything else, again, like my, my area of study is anthropology and archaeology. 
which now that I'm thinking about it probably also has something to do with why I'm so fixated on like the day-to-day parts of life when I photograph because that's that's the focus of anthropology is the everyday pieces not so much the the big ceremonial or the big like things that we make huge deals out of it's the everyday repetitions and what does that mean who who have been and who are your biggest influences I've been I've been thinking about this a lot because I don't have a lot of people that like really come to mind whenever I look at photography. Um, and that was part of why I got into it was I didn't know a lot of uh, indigenous photographers. Um, now that I'm this many years in, uh, Matiko Wilbur from Project Five Sixty Two. Her photos always kind of guide me. Um, Ryan Visions, who's not native, but I met him at uh, the No Dapple protests. Uh, He had a book called No Spiritual Surrender. Um, And his photos, him and then uh, another guy from No Dapple that I met out there named uh, Josue Rivas, Rivas. Um, both of them produced photo books that I go back to regularly and like really look through and talking with them has helped shape the way like, I approach photography in a lot of ways. Uh, Edward Hopper, like the, the painter, um, looking at his stuff is one of the things that made me realize I need to start slowing down and paying attention to, to light and how people are moving in like composition um, looking at his paintings have really, really helped with that. So I think those four, if I had to like pull people that inspire me or at least inspire my art like that, those are the four that I think I'd pull from. Hmm. How, how has, and we've, we've definitely touched on a lot of this at the beginning, but, uh, yeah. How have your, can't talk. How has your career (laughs) developed, uh, even with college and uh, well, you're not quite post uh, uh, masters yet, but uh, where are you in that process? Um, it's a good question. Photography's never been the complete focus for me. Um, there's times where I've tried to make it like my primary goal, my primary focus and I get so burnt out on it that I start to to not want to do it, which isn't helpful and it's not healthy because photography is my outlet for a lot of things. Um, it's when I'm cr- feeling creative, that's one of the avenues that I have. And it's my primary avenue. And so I realized that trying to make it my primary identity, my primary thing in life was ultimately counterproductive because it was making me start to resent it in a way. Um, so I've had to like kind of dial it back and let it be something that I do when the mood hits. Um, 
which thankfully my chosen career uh, has very much allowed me to do. Um, I've been on a couple archaeological digs um, as a volunteer and as a student. And it's very nice because I get to bring a camera with me. And part of archaeology is just like rigorous um, documentation of stuff. And people kind of forget that they're a part of that process, that they are not impartial, objective observers, but that they are actively engaged in the process of archaeology and taking photos of them digging, taking photos of them doing that work really helps to drive that point home. Um, my, my day job right now, uh, while I'm still going to school, is the tribal initiatives director at NDSU. Um, but before that, I was working for uh, Standing Rock's Tribal Historic Preservation Office. And with my current job, I don't get to do a lot of photography um, as part of the job. But when I worked with THPO, it was a big part of the job. Um, keeping track of where everything was, taking photos of where significant things were. Um, and I think incorporating photography more into my life in that way has like really helped me um, keep it as something that makes me happy and not something that causes me stress. Um, it's taken five years, seven, wait, I think it's 2022 now. So six and a half years to open up a print store after like taking photos that entire time, essentially. And I wanted to do it back probably three years ago, but it was just so stressful. I wanted to do it the year after. And again, it was just so much stress. And now I'm at a point where I don't have to worry about it. I have this backlog that I was able to upload and I'm happy with it. So having like this print store, having like these avenues of creation that I'm not super stressed about is really, really helpful and really nice. So uh, the other part of that photography, because I feel like I was talking in circles, trying to get back to where I wanted to go. Um, the My photography isn't for anyone in particular. I make it for me because it makes me happy. And then I put it out because if it makes, if it brings me joy, if it speaks to me, it might speak to someone else. And so that's kind of how I've been approaching it is if no one else interacts with this, if no one likes this work, that doesn't matter because it wasn't for them. Um, there was a period of time where I was trying to make photos that like appealed to Twitter and appeal to Instagram, appeal to like this algorithm that runs social media. And now I've gotten to a point where I'm like, that doesn't matter. The, the Facebook likes, the Twitter notifications, like none of that matters. I'll put it out there so that people can look at it. But ultimately these are images that I'm happy with and speak to me. And I hope that they find someone else that they resonate with. But if that doesn't happen, it doesn't happen. 
I think that's an incredibly important uh, thing to note, uh, especially with social media, that you know, likes and, and notifications don't necessarily indicate that something is of good quality. Um, you know, I'm I'm in the art field myself, and a lot of the professionals that are doing really great work that I know, some of them have a very small online presence, but their work is fantastic. You know, mm-hmm. um, and a lot of the big influencers who you know are illustrators or creative types, um, the work is okay for social media, but that's what they work for. Like that's that's the focus of their career, and it's yeah. a little more shallow than other people that I'm aware of. Yeah, and that's that was something that I started to notice um, in the last six months or so with like the rise of um, NFTs, non fungible tokens, cryptocurrency. And like, especially with NFTs, like the, the art that gets produced with that, because initially it was all the, um, the computer generated images where it was essentially the same thing with just like randomly generated, um, accessories. And now watching photographers get into it, it doesn't make sense to me, uh, how that venue is contributing to art because you don't have it like when i buy if i go to the museum and i buy a print i have a physical print that i have up on a wall that i can point to and there's a story that goes with it there's something that i can say about that piece with an nft all i have is a jpeg and a receipt saying that i own that with no physical no physical thing i can point to And so people talk about like their NFT collections and I just, it doesn't quite compute for me because having a collection of JPEGs, like I have that, I have many thousands of JPEGs (laughs) that there's no, there's no inherent value in that. Whereas with a, a print, like it's a physical thing that I can continue to, to trade. It's a physical thing I can point to. Um, and it's just, it's such an interesting time to be a photographer or to be an artist of any kind and watching that whole sphere really inflate. Cause I, I just can't quite understand why I'm right there with you. Um, I have a, uh, a friend who is pushing me to do NFTs and I'm, I'm still trying to wrap my brain around how that works. Um, there's a story out of New York where um, a group has, I think they were calling for a national group of people to to put mon- their money in to get this collection, which is absurd to me because it's a collection that no one will ever be able to have in their house. It's again, like you said, it's a JPEG. Um, I don't know. It's I, I don't get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. the The main argument I see is it's decentralized. It's deregulated, but. I don't quite get how that makes it more important, how it makes it more valuable. Um, I'm like really big into music. I love specifically hip hop. And a couple years ago, uh, Wu-Tang Clan uh, recorded Once Upon a Time in Shaolin, which no one has ever heard because one guy bought it, kept it under lock and key, went bankrupt and the government seized his assets. And so they had the only copy of once upon a time in Shaolin 
and there was an NFT collective that bought it and they bought it with, yeah, they bought it with, um, cryptocurrency. I don't know if it was Bitcoin or Ethereum, but they had to pay a significant surcharge in order to get, um, to get this record because the government won't, the U S government won't work with in Bitcoin. Like it needed to be U S <laughs> cash. And so there was this, it, that whole exchange, I was like, kind of proves to me, or at least illustrates that we're not at a point where cryptocurrency is a viable option to buy physical media, to buy real goods. Um, and now I have no idea what happened with that album. Hmm. Like the whole point of it was that we're buying it and it'll go up somewhere or it'll be available. And that just hasn't happened. It's just gone into the ether where for all intents and purposes, that album still does not exist. I, I didn't know that it had, uh, the album had, um, I, I, I know the person who had the original version or the only version of that, he went to prison. And yep. I, I, after that, I, I had lost track of what the story was with that. Um, but that's interesting. It's, it's kind of hilarious too, that the government's gotten involved and, and, uh, the idea of our, of the U S government trying to work in Bitcoin or <laughs> trying, trying to sort yeah. out that mess. Yeah. That whole story was super interesting to me. And I, I like really got into it. Cause I was like, I want to know <laughs> what the, what ramifications this has for NFTs. Cause all of my social medias, people were just pushing NFTs so hard. And then I read that and I was like, nothing could have dissuaded me from the NFT market more than this story. <laughs> I guess you know, the, the question that comes now is, is how do you seek opportunities or how have opportunities um, presented themselves to you? Obviously an NFT is probably not an opportunity that you're going to look for. Uh, yeah, no, um, I'm a very lucky and fortunate person and I've kind of stumbled into like every opportunity I've ever had. Um, and with photography, it's very much that, the second part of the old photojournalism adage where it's F8 and be there, I just show up and wherever I am, that's how I get my opportunities is just talking to people, being at events, um, being in the community and talking and working with people is how I've gotten all my opportunities. It's how I've built my name. It's, that's the most important part of it to me is community. And for a lot of uh, protests and events like that, I would give my photos to whoever was organizing it because those photos do me no good sitting in a Google drive. They do no one any good sitting in a Google drive. So instead I will give them back to the community and from there they can make flyers, they can create images to rally behind, they can do whatever, but at least in their hands, it can become something when it sits with me again in a hard drive, the power of those photos is very, very much reduced. So yeah, again, like just showing up to places and being present is the biggest key to what I do. 
what would you want to say to the 18 or the 22 year old that's listening to this conversation? Start creating. If, if creating art is something that's important to you, it doesn't matter what your, what gear, what equipment, what technology you have, use it and start making. Um, I've seen incredible photos taken on old iPod touches and I've seen absolutely horrible photos taken on like current modern day digital flagship, uh, like camera bodies. The gear doesn't necessarily matter. Like it's nice to have nice gear, but start creating, start small and don't get discouraged when you don't get all the, the Facebook likes, all the notifications, because what the algorithm pushes is not necessarily what the world needs to see. And it's not necessarily what you're creating. The almighty algorithm that like governs social media and the internet as a whole right now, it's not trying to push new stuff. It's pushing the same things that will the same things over and over and over because it knows it'll get engagement. And the primary motive of the algorithm is profit. The primary motive of art is creativity and creation. Um, and that's start with that. Don't go into it expecting to blow up right away, but don't let that discourage you. Where can the listener uh, find you um, on social media to be able to connect with your work? Uh, so I have a website, um, ishtamaza.com, I-S-T-A-M-A-Z-A.com. Uh, I have links to my um, my Facebook, uh, my dark room where I have all my prints for sale. And I have a little merch store because I started getting um, some of my photos printed onto shirts and sweaters and stickers and postcards because I thought that was all really cool and it was something that I really wanted to do. So you can go there and pretty much from that platform, you can find me anywhere else. Um, most places I'm Ishtamaza, I-S-T-A-M-A-Z-A. -A -A. Uh, I believe on Instagram, I have an underscore in the middle because all one word Ishtamaza was taken and I have no way of getting it, but I, I want it. So if you're listening to this and you have Ishtamaza, please let me know. And I will probably pay you to get that handle because I want it. Um, but everywhere else I'm pretty Ishtamaza or Ishtamaza photo. We'll put links in the show notes. Uh, so the listener can click on those. So we'll make those discoverable and good luck with that. <laughs> um, Twitter, uh, someone has, uh, the handle that I use and they got it, I think in 2013 oh, and they've never used it. Yep. <laughs> I want, I want the handle, but I can't have it. So I feel that <laughs> I'm, I'm unified on everything. Everything is Ishtamaza until you get to Instagram. And then I have the underscore and I'm like, ah, well, hopefully, uh, they're listening or they hear about this and, and, uh, you two can have a conversation. Hopefully. <laughs> Tyrell, thank you so much for your time and sharing your story with us. This has really been great. Thank you very much for having me. I'm 
Very happy to have been on. And that does it for this episode of Five Plain Questions. I want to thank Tyrell again for his time and sharing his story with us. I think it's so important that Indigenous voices are the ones telling their stories. And a situation about the Keystone XL pipeline protest, what has happened uh, on both sides of the issue is that Indigenous voices, Native American voices, are not the ones that are in forefront telling the story. And I think it's, it's, it's easy to lose perspective with all the passions that surround this. And it's so important that individuals that are not just Native American, but from Standing Rock are the ones telling the story because they're the ones that will have to live with the long-term effects of, of that pipeline and that experience. Not, not just the protests, but uh, the, the media, the North Dakota media that sort of changed the narrative so much. Uh, the, really, honestly, the, the misinformation from the state of North Dakota on what happened. And I think it's important to understand that. But more importantly, it's, 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 it's vital that we listen to the stories and perspectives from Native Americans, from Standing Rock, and that were there. Because what they were saying was not lost on other Native Americans and the supporters, but the translation was lost on the general public. And so that's, I think it's something that we need to talk more about and try to facilitate more conversations. And that's why this podcast exists is to be able to tell the story of Indigenous people by Indigenous people. That being said, I don't want to lose um, the purpose of this podcast is to focus on the incredible work by Tyrell. He's an amazing photographer. He is His work is incredible. So I, I ask you to check out his social media, his website, um, and support him. He, he's an amazing photographer, and he's got a lot to say. And he's got an incredible career ahead of him. So, ahead of him. So, uh, you know, Tyrell, this was a fantastic conversation. Thank you for what you brought to us. And I look forward to uh, what's coming next. With that said, I want to thank you for joining us and spending your time what I feel is a very important story and perspective from our community. So please, join us next week as we speak with another incredible person. I'm Joe Williams. You can find me on Canna. That's C-A-N-A-A, Creativity Among Native American Artists, on Facebook, on Instagram, uh, across social media. You can also find us on, on the PlainsArt.org website. There you can see our programming, past videos, and these podcasts. So if you have a suggestion for someone for me to talk to, please find me on Facebook or Instagram and message me. I'd really like to hear from you. Well, that's it. You take care, and we will see you next time. This has been an 11 Warrior Arts production.